right, and welcome to episode 46 of Etc. Etc. I'm your host, Aug Stone. Very excited as earlier this week I finally got to release Decalogue 6. For those of you who don't know, every 10 episodes of the Young Southpaw Part of an Hour podcast, I put out a collection of the 10 stories on Bandcamp as Decalogues. Yes, it's a nod to Polish film director Krzysztof Kozlowski. And yes, the very first collection was called The First Ten Podcasts in a nod to the Iron Maiden documentary DVD, The First Ten Years. And I guess, yes, Decalogue is spelt D-E-K-A-L-A-U-G, so it has my name in it. Are you with me so far? Well, because of my much-professed love of soup, I thought each cover should feature a different color soup on it. And because this most recent collection would collect episodes 51 through 60, I got so excited that I could then call it 5160. And then even more excited when Kelly Hudak, who's taken a ton of the young Southpaw photos and designed the cover for all these, was able to make the soup look like Eddie Van Halen's guitar stripes. We did these photos two years ago, and then it was just a matter of waiting till I got to 60 episodes. And now we're finally here. And to quote Guided by Voices, shit, yeah, it's cool. I can't believe I'm up to 60 Southpaw stories for the podcast now. I mean, that's a lot of absurdity. And this collection is a bunch of episodes that I love. Recastaways, reimagines Gilligan's Island with musicians replacing the actors. You got John Denver for Bob Denver. Marianne Faithful as Marianne. Public Enemies Professor Griff as the Professor, etc. The episode Fugazi Hills 90210 was inspired by my confusion watching 90 as a teenager. And then the episode somehow asks if Aaron Spelling intended the show as some sort of tribute to Ian MacKay. And Maxwell's Silver Hammer Horror Films was really good fun to write. You got Paul McCartney, Christopher Lee, and MC Hammer all attempting to bust out of Alcatraz. So if you're intrigued, and I hope you are, You can find these lovely covers and crazy stories over at youngsouthpaw.bandcamp.com. And the Young Southpaw Part of an Hour podcast is up wherever good podcasts are found. If you want to subscribe, that would be much appreciated. And to give you a taste, here's a clip from the latest episode, Boba Fett and the Blue Hearts. You know that song? You know that song by the Sex Pistols, you know? EMI, Unlimited Supply, you know? And like how Joan Jett covered it, but changed it to MCA? Because she was on MCA Records? I mean, I get it, you know? The tune's about having troubles with your record company. But like with her label, you know, she could have totally gone a, a different route. 
try to get to the bottom of what they were doing. You know, like, why? MCA. Asking them their reasons behind all the malarkey. Complete with dance moves for all the letters. And it would be rad too, all those villagers, you know, the biker, the cowboy, the construction worker, etc. They could expand their repertoire from in the Navy, now with Joan Jett, to include the Air Force as well. But before we even get there, like, you know, Joan Jett, it's the same number of syllables as young men. So, like, Joan Jett, do, 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 Joan Jett, do, 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 do. And, and, like, Joan, I mean, she's the one singing. She's making the verses like a mockery of the record company, listing all their grievances. Like a rock and roll festivus. And then she replies in the chorus to these ridiculous charges, you know? YMCA! And then you can take this even further, because I'm picturing, like, you know, for the video, having a jet pack! And, like, it could be that I've just been watching The Mandalorian a lot, but, like, Boba Fett rhymes with jet. Get old Boba in there too. He's bounty hunting the village people, but like in the spirit of the good times that they represent, he ends up joining them. And heck, like maybe at the end of the song, you know, Boba Fett takes off his helmet and it's Joe Jet. I mean, she'd have to do it under a different name if she didn't want everyone to see this coming, you know? Maybe like Boba Fett and the... I guess Boba has an extra syllable. Bob Fett? That just doesn't sound right. Robert Fett? Was Bobcat Goldthwait actually Robert Cat? Robert Cat Goldfett? I mean, Beskar would be pretty cool looking in gold, you know? Gold if fat in the gold hearts? Bobcat Goldthwait's long-awaited solo album? How about just Bob Fett, you know? And the Blue Hearts? Featuring the jazz guitar stylings of his father, Django! If you want to hear more of that, and believe me, there's more, it's episode 60 of the Young Southpaw Part of an Hour podcast. We haven't even gotten to the parts about Carl Weathers, you know, or Sylvester Stallone. Ooh, I don't want to give too much away. But I mean, that part about Joan Jett recording EMI as MCA is actually true. And I love stuff like that. I remember doing a gig at the State House in New Haven, Connecticut a couple of years ago and walking outside to get some air after my set. And a fellow comedian's boyfriend came out and said to me, you're a historian, aren't you? And I'd never thought of young Southpaw like that before, but it makes perfect sense. I mean, these stories almost always start from a nugget of truth like that. 
Actually, yesterday I summed it up in a way I really like. Eddie Van Halen was a caller into Frazier's radio show on season one, episode seven. And Jane Leaves, who played Daphne Moon, was the tourist with the baby in David Lee Roth's California Girls video. And somewhere in the middle lies my work as young Southpaw. But enough about me. Let's get to my interview with today's guests. (laughs) We got Rob and Amelia from the Catenary Wires. They were on the show last autumn and we had a lot of fun, as we did with this one, so it was great to have them back. The Catenary Wires' new record, Burling Gap, is out June 18th on their newly formed record label, Skep Wax. And we talk about all this and more. So let's get to it. All right, we're here with Amelia and Rob from the Catenary Wires. How are you guys doing? Doing good, thank you. We're pretty good, thank you very much. The sun came out today for the first time in about five years. (laughs) I think you traded with us because it's been raining all day. Oh, sorry. So get your gloating out now. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, everybody in America. (laughs) All right, so my first question, Amelia, you're an economist, right? Yes. And you guys thought it would be a good idea to start a record label. Uh, <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, um. well, as an economist, I can tell you that there's a lot of things that uh, matter to people other than just money. <laughs> therefore. Really? I wouldn't have thought an economist would have such a view. I'm a behavioral economist and therefore I think about consumers, uh, well, human behavior and not just um, cash. So, uh, yeah, we're, we are exhibiting all sorts of behavioral biases in our desire to have a record label. I think the good thing about being in any kind of indie band is that it completely contradicts most of the sort of like dearly held tenets of, of right wing economics. So. If you're a monetarist or if you're a neocon of any kind, then the idea that you might do something for the love of it, for the art, without any sense of any likely pecuniary reward is kind of like, is in itself a kind of an affront to... Yeah, they don't understand that sort of thinking. (laughs) So, So it's a kind of statement. Yeah, that's doing it at all. When, <laughs> when, I, when I realised, when I finally, because we did go into it with our eyes shut a little bit, um, and the first single that we put out on our label, which is a Swansea sound single, um, it did entirely sell out, and it did nonetheless lose money. It lost a tiny bit of money. If you make um, seven-inch singles, then you aren't going to make any money, but... But then the utility, which is a word that Amelia likes, which is an economist <laughs> of this, was that it meant that it, the utility value was that the label suddenly was on the map because yeah. people had heard of the single. And so it's more likely that people will buy the hugely profitable album <laughs> that, will, <laughs> that will follow. It was a loss um, leader. <laughs> yeah. but businesses do that all the time. Yeah, It charted it though, right? Yeah, well, it did. And it, it obviously in this country... To chart with vinyl, actually, we shouldn't under. I mean, it means that they all sold out very quickly. So everybody pre-ordered it. So it all went out on the same day. So it all registered at the same time. So we got to number ten in the physical singles chart, which was it was quite a nice surprise. I mean, first time we've ever done it. Yeah, it was cool. cool. <laughs> um, 
it was it was great and um it was very nice seeing i just was really pleased to see i mean it's clearly a song which is kind of it was an anti-corporate anti-spotify anti-google song it's called indies of the world and there it is in number 10 indies of the world it was just fun to see that phrase on the, on that list really amongst all the yeah Noel Gallagher and crap like that <laughs> you'd normally expect to find him or maybe it's his brother one of them you know some sort of turgid corporate crap was like we were next to that and it was kind of I was really pleased yeah no, it was sure really, so yeah so that so we went that and the first continuary world single the only things that have actually come out but the of the album coming up and we've got this one the sound album being made as we speak and then we've got a plan a secret plan which I can't talk about too much because I promised people I won't. We, we've got another thing coming out after that, which is the first thing that will involve people other than us. If you see what I mean? So, mm. yeah. so the label, we started off with ourselves as, as our own, we were are our own guinea pigs because we thought if we messed it up, it would be less embarrassing if we messed up our own releases. If you messed up somebody else's release, it'd be terrible. But we're more confident now because we thought we didn't mess it up completely. Yeah. So, <laughs> Um, so yeah, yeah. We, we're kind of getting to the point where we can think about doing other people's stuff. Yeah, more seriously though, um, as no, well, was, that was, was serious, that was but serious. Uh, in terms <laughs> of the in terms of the economic question that you asked, it was helpful. Um, what I have been doing is, as an economist is trying to understand why it is so hard to make money in the music industry, since there are lots of people who love it and pay money, are quite happy to pay money for it. Um, but nonetheless, it's really, really difficult unless you're a major label to make money. Um, so I have been trying to delve into that and thinking about how streaming fits into all of that. Yeah, so. it's, a, it's a shocking state of affairs that you know, getting music to people is a lot cheaper than it used to be because of yeah, to put something up digitally, there's no shop, there's no physical product. And yet most musicians are earning less. So what's happened is that the big labels, and there's three of them, have basically conspired with Spotify and the streamers to ensure that most of the revenue that's derived from streaming goes to them, not to musicians. I mean, it's, yeah. a, kind of, it's a monstrous heist. Well, um, to be honest, the reason we don't make money out of it is not enough if people listen on Spotify. <laughs> but, well, but, but actually, you know, people that put out properly successful records also don't make any money out of it. Yeah, yeah. it is. It is shocking. So, I mean, we, we have argued about it. So, because I, I suppose the way it falls down is Swansea Down is Swansea Sound is my band and Continuary Wise is sort of well, our oh, band, but it's kind of Amelia's. So I get to be the dictator with Swansea Sound. So Swansea Sound hasn't been on Spotify at all. Um, you can only get it physically or on Bandcamp. And nice. as a result, probably has made more money than <laughs> continuing ones well, because if you put it on Spotify, you might as well just sort of throw it in the street and ask people to like, you know, pick it up if they feel like it. It's um it's no it's no way to run a railroad. Yeah. I have Spotify. I, I really I, I don't have my stuff on Spotify. I don't use it. I, I it's a shame because it's the only way to really like share playlists with like a lot of people, but there's just something about it that really doesn't sit right with me. Yeah. Well, I mean, not something about it. It's very obvious what about it. No, I don't blame people for using it. It's a bit like, you know, if you blame people for going to the supermarket rather than getting stuff organically from the old guy down the road who does organic boxes, it's like not always practical. You know, and people People, the way those companies work, I mean, Spotify and Uber and all those big digital companies is that they know that consumers want convenience. 
And once you've got them hooked on the convenience, you can shaft the producers, in this case, musicians or taxi drivers or whoever's providing the service, because there's this huge chunk of consumers who think it's really great and convenient. And for those people to get into their heads that their convenience comes at the price of somebody else's welfare, it's quite a hard, it's quite a hard message to get across. Yeah. I've been thinking in music, like- in music you can actually tell a, a pretty convincing story, I think, that if you if you do not allow the creators to gain any benefit from their creation, then in the end, except for lo- lunatics like us who kind of carry on irrespective um, because we've got day jobs and we can afford to, but the vast majority of people that create music are just not going to be able to. And in the longer term, it won't be good for consumers, even if they think it's good, because <laughs> there won't be all the music that they have currently. So, I mean, it's we'll a, see. I mean, in that respect, it's a very, very pure form of capitalism, which is that it will extract as much value from the thing as it can, even up to the point of killing the thing that it extracts the value from. Pop will eat itself. Pop will indeed. <laughs> yeah. So, it feels like karma. As usual, like socialists and liberals like us are saving capitalism, like carrying on making new stuff and refusing to be part of the of the sausage machine that kills everything. Um, so idiots like us carry on making much <laughs> fresh new things so that the creative sort of fountain isn't completely blocked up <laughs> by the green. Um, it's, it's, I think it's true. That, I mean, as an economist, as you're a sort of, you're a liberal in the business of saving capitalism for itself, aren't you? Oak's only asked one question so far. Should we go to the next one? It's a killer. We, we, we spend more time arguing about economics than we do about music. So, you know, I, I feel we probably. could rant about this for a good hour, so we should move on. But one thing I've been thinking of is like, like a jukebox sort of system, instead of like a subscription model, which I get is is already here and it appeals to everyone. But like in bars, people are p- perfectly willing to pay like a pound for like three songs. Like if that <laughs> would have, if you were to switch it over, where you know, maybe for like you get like. 10, 20 songs for a pound, but you have a running account instead of a monthly subscription where it's, you know, dealt out to not exactly who's who they've been getting plays from anyway. You'd have yeah, to restructure it completely, but that's been on my mind a lot lately, that that would be a fair way of doing it. I think that's not a bad idea at all. Uh, yeah. But equally, I think the, the thing that, I, in fact, I've been arguing for and lots of other people have been arguing for is you user-centric payment. So at least your subscription goes to who you've been listening to. Because yeah. at the moment, is if you don't listen to that much music on Spotify, the vast amount of your money goes to the people that other people listen to. Um, so, you know, if I listen to obscure indie <laughs> indie artists on Spotify and pay my subscription, which I do do, um, but I don't listen to that much. Actually, the vast majority of my money is going to, I don't know, whoever's big on Spotify right now, Drake or Beyonce or, or uh, Olivia Rodrigo. <laughs> so, but it's, yes, the, the model is the opposite of redistributive. It kind yeah. of like, it concentrates the wealth at yeah. the very top. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, it should go directly to who made the music. <laughs> Per the number of plays, they can actually pay a decent amount for that, yeah. which that would help. Um, yeah, no, we've we've just <laughs> um, the, the Swansea Sound were asked to do a Christmas single, so I've written a Christmas song called um, "Happy Christmas to Me," which is written from the perspective of Eck, who is the boss of Spotify, 
and also from the perspective of Jeff Bezos. And it's just about people who are really saying happy Christmas to me as as we give <laughs> as them, the, as the we money rolls merrily in. give them everything they want. <laughs> so you just wrote a Christmas single in, in May? Yeah. Nice. Well, yeah, it's got to be ready to be pressed quite soon because right. it takes about years to get records pressed. This is the really strange thing. This is all Christmas singles you've ever heard basically get made in the spring or all summer. Mm. But then it's <laughs> There's bands all around the world trying to feel Christmassy in the spring and summer. Well, I thought, I, I, then again, it's quite easy to feel angry. In that. <laughs> if you think about the people who run Spotify and Amazon, then mm. you can feel pretty cross any time of the year. <laughs> not just at Christmas. No, it's not. Hatred is not just for Christmas. <laughs> Circling back to the record label, the name Skep Wax, where'd it come from? <laughs> yeah, well, um, so the the where we live which is in the middle of nowhere as you know there's a barn an old barn that was kind of falling down and us and our friend darren who lives in the village did up the barn and turned it into a, a kind of rustic venue so we've had music in there and all sorts of entertainments um and that building got christened the skep um and the skep is is a is a beehive. You know, there's old wicker beehives that are shaped classic beehive shape. Yeah. Um, and the reason skeps are no, not just that they're known for a place where you keep bees, but they're also notorious in this part of Kent because they are what were used by smugglers as a disguise, so that people wouldn't see them. You put a skep over your head, two eye holes cut out. So they were used by smugglers to disguise themselves in the same way that terrorists might wear a mask. So. That's that's where the word skep came from. Um, it refers to this venue, I suppose, is what it is. Um, and then, yeah, we, and we like the word. And then, and wax, obviously, is good because it's records and it's also what bees. bees. I, I like that, yeah. Yeah, so yeah there's a, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> that's, that is why it's called skep wax. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> and one day, you know, in, 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 you should come, and there's something happening, you should come to the skep and hear, we've, play, we've played in the skep. Um, Darren Heyman's played in the skep um, and lots of local people, you know, have played in the skep as well. Nice. So, an old barn with a PA in it, really. Are there bees? Uh, there are wasps, actually. There was a, there was <laughs> a wasp nest. <laughs> there was. But it was not, that was not so great. Um, at the moment, there are no bees. So sort of thinking that, like, relaxing and, and being entertained isn't compatible with being pestered by you know, swarms of bees. Actually, the last time we went in there, because it's not been used since lockdown, basically, and I went in there last week, and there was this funny noise, and I was like, "That there must be a baby bird somewhere. I've got to save the baby bird. And I was wandering around trying to find this baby bird, and I just suddenly realised, because we've got this old stove in there to keep people warm in the winter, it was actually a carbon monoxide detector that was losing its battery. <laughs> it was going beep, beep. <laughs> But that's all that's in there at the moment is some beetles. <laughs> yeah, like everything else, it's 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 got to sit there unused. You get that like with the, as a rhythm track, and then like a swarm of bees would be like a great art project. <laughs> yeah, that would work. The ambient sound. Of the sky. Yeah. <laughs> all right, so let's get to Berlin Gap, the new Catenary Wires album. Before we get to uh, the actual songs in the press release. You mentioned three great bands that I love that I want to talk about your feelings toward. First up, the Go-Betweens. 
Yeah. Well, I mean... Well, we're both like, really like the go-betweens. Um, and they they had an album called Tallulah and we were in a band called Tallulah. Gosh. I think, um, that, I think that the reason... I never I'm put a, that together before. Um, yeah, the go-betweens, I think, because of all bands that I know, they managed to combine really good tunes with a high degree of literacy, unembarrassed literacy, and they could be, but they were moving. They could move you um, while writing about things that were specific and sometimes things that you couldn't necessarily comprehend what they were, but they moved. And actually often think writing about things in the third party. So oftentimes things are moving, third the third person, sorry. So there's oftentimes things are moving, they, it does, they feel so personal, but the go-betweens quite often don't sound that personal but they're nonetheless moving. And I think that's the way what we were trying to do on this album. Yeah. There is a bit of personal stuff, but quite a bit of it about That's true, actually. Other that song, The Clarks, which is a brilliant portrait of mm. of other people, which they is, is that, isn't it? That, that's a very moving song, and they, the portrait of other people's lives that they managed to put into a song. Yeah. I think that's, yeah, that's true about the go-betweens. But we put the go-betweens in, in the press release not realising that the book was about coming out about Lindsay Morrison <laughs> and all the gender aspects of um, of the go-betweens, which I hadn't even thought of. But uh, it was quite, it, it kind of actually fits quite well. It's some of what's, some of the, some of the thinking, some of the kind of topics on the album are not a million miles away from the themes that um, Tracy Thorne was exploring in that book. Yeah, I mean... Obviously, we're not very like the go-betweens, really, but we, and also because there's the vocal duties and the writing duties are shared between us. So I think the go-betweens, uh, I don't know, I don't know what else to say about it, really, because I think that no, no other of us have read that book, but obviously a lot of people were talking about it because it was a, it, it was initially revealed as some kind of expose that sort of, but, you know, the, the go-betweens were a sad band. I mean, Grant was a heroin addict. They were, they were completely messed up. Um, I mean, it doesn't excuse things that happened, but I don't know. I think it's kind of, it's, uh, we were, we're in two minds about referring to anything in the press release, but we thought it was quite useful on this occasion because the songs did feel quite different from what we'd done before. And like Amy says, we were writing about something rather than just our own feelings. And so it was quite useful to have references to other bands that, that did that. Mm. So I think that's and you mentioned the kicks, the second band I want to talk about, yeah, which was a well, good touchstone. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 well, I personally, I love the kinks. And I saw, I, I, I saw, one of those bands I love more and more and more. I've always liked them, but I've come to come to, come to love them. But the, one of the particular reason why I, well, we referred to them was that as we were, the songs that came together on the LP were clearly, a lot of them were about this country and what it's like at the moment. And one of the things I really love about the Kinks is that they could write songs that were on the, on the edge of satiric, but they always he always maintained sympathy or an empathy for the people he was writing about. So he didn't... So there's a song on the album called Three Wheeled Car, which is about a couple who are kind of rather nationalistic and proud to the point of self-destruction of the country they live in. Um, and... There's a way of doing that where you could just be kind of mean and rude about people that you disagree. I mean, I, I, I don't dis I don't agree with these people. I think their their mindset has done this country great deal of damage. But 
but the idea of the song was to not treat them as not to pillory them but to try and sort of understand them sort of feel where they were coming from and and the kinks are an interesting example and it was it, I had a really interesting conversation with Andy who produced the record about this so he was quite a big part of this the thinking behind the album because uh we we, t- we were talking about the kinks and I was saying that they're, they're, we were agreeing they're an interesting band because they the kinks are liked by people like me who think they give a kind of emotive critique of the country that they lived in in which we live in now but they're also liked by people who are quite flag-waving patriotic types you know so then there's two ways of reading the kinks is and to li- people who listen to the kinks now but at the jam i think some people you know the jam are listened to a lot of people who are quite right wing really like the jam. It's probably a bit like Bruce Springsteen for America. Actually, yeah, like yeah. So you way. think so? The songs are written, which are kind of quite subtle, and in Weller's case, you know, quite often quite angry political songs. Um, and I'm not a huge fan in the, in the way that I am of the Kinks, but I, you know, I admire his songwriting. And despite <laughs> what clearly seems to be the message of the songs, they're embraced by people who who um, carry you have attitudes which are almost the exact <laughs> the same as being satirized even mm. criticized in these in these songs and so that's that's why the kinks is, is mentioned because it, it the way they could write about england but also the way the english chose to consume them yeah there's a more basic thing which is actually there's quite a lot of harmonies and musical motifs that are quite kinksy as well yeah so but they were kind of deliver well the harmonies we always do harmonies but they're really a lot of harmonies this album partly for the very simple reason that we realized that everybody in the band could sing uh, and i've always loved harmonies but then now we can kind of really go to town with it um but i think also it was a partly a harking back to some of those bands that really did have Lots of really good harmonies. Yeah, which and they did have amazing harmonies in, in their songs. What's your favourite Kinks album? Um, I, I generally don't know. I mean, I, I don't know. I, mean, I sort of, I magpie about. I don't, re- I don't really listen to LPs in a very kind of grown-up way. I just kind of, I think, I'd, I'm more likely to go, I need to hear a bit of the Kinks right now, so I'll, I'll just find whatever's available on the record shelf or on, you know, on the computer. And So I'm not, I'm not very... I'm really untidy listener, I suppose. I don't, I don't ah. really listen to albums properly the way that I should. Um, it's weird. I, I also I tend to get obsessed with one song, so I was obsessed with Dead End Street, and I think it's one of the songs on the album. You can probably tell it's got you can hear it a little bit, but I just got obsessed with that song because it, it's so brilliant, and so beautiful. So I, I probably listened to that about fifty times, <laughs> and should have listened to a lot more, but I just got obsessed with that song. The other thing is that for all our um being rude about uh, modern digital platforms. The other thing we get quite obsessed by doing is looking at old videos on YouTube. So we have looked at a lot of kinks playing their songs and mm. it's, it's just, they are brilliant. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. we end up watch, watching as much as listening. Yeah, it's true. Because it is true, it's useful that because you can see obviously what you're watching is how they did it live as opposed to how it came out on record. But it's a really fascinating you can see what they did, what they the way the way they played it was, you know, the way any four piece band would play, and then, but then you can work out the kind of, you can see the working that went from that the song that's on the, on the record, the, all the additional vocals and all the other things. So it's quite, yeah, it's quite useful research, I suppose. Yeah, we've been in, in lockdown. We've been doing um, various covers for various reasons, just 
couples. And actually, we've worked out that watching the performances on YouTube are by far the best way of working out. Sometimes you didn't even have any clue that, you know, things were sung by different people in the band or, you know, it, it just how it all fits together. Because when you record something, it creates this magical thing that just merges and is more than the sum of its parts. And you can't really decode it, but when you, when, and, and, unless you have the kind of visual cues. Hmm. I've done that. <laughs> <laughs> have you always been that way, being more of a singles or songs guy than like a full album or um uh i'm probably more so now i think yeah spend more time making stuff up than listening to stuff now maybe because i've listened to enough i suppose i listen to so much um and i do occasionally get a crush on a new thing um but no i i, I listen more, i'm more magpie like than i used to be so i would listen to when i was younger i'd listen to a whole go betweens album or a whole kinks album or a whole f- album by the fall and i you know listen to it and i listen to it as an album again I think uh, maybe I probably I mean, I'm I'm probably in a in a way I'm the same as anybody else, which is that digital culture means that the kind of the album is less of a is, is yeah. not so much anymore because you can just pick and choose a song. But I did always I probably did so like singles more than albums always. I mean, yeah, a, a perfect single is kind of they're the, probably the records I cherish most that are up on are in the shelf. That yeah, the, the perfect single is the thing that I get. Yeah, cherish more actually. Most of us magpie through albums to try and figure out which is my the song. You know, find a song on an album that no one else is going to know because it's like it's it's great, but it wasn't a single. But even th- but then that will be the song I play off that album, as it were. So it doesn't it doesn't mean that I play the whole album. I think we're probably. I suppose we are we are we are pop rather than rock, aren't we? So that so singles is is what we like. And when I was young, like when I was little, I remember albums were the things that sort of men with beards listen to so yeah, and there was sort of you know, I remember this bloke who was a friend of my dad who I quite liked but he liked in, in his living room I remember there was like lots of Steppenwolf albums and like you know these kind of like and yes albums and I still I think albums for me are still a little bit like a bit like that it's like some dreadful epic talking-esque journey through somebody else's yeah. guitar solos I think it, I think it really is not fair on albums but I think it is also a problem with digital because now or and probably to do with music being too cheap and us you know being able to have as much of it basically as we want because I remember the key thing was you would get by an album you'd save well I would have saved up quite a long time to get an album um, and then once you got it, you're going to listen to it because, you you know, that would be a waste yeah. of money not to listen to the whole thing. It's just like the singles, you had to listen to the B-side at least as much as the A-side because, you know, you've got you've got a new thing in your house. Um, and I just don't think that I, I rarely feel like that anymore. Even if I buy an album, I might listen, I might listen to the whole thing once. Yeah, I don't know. I was, but then again, when we were making this album of ours, we did think really hard about which... Yeah, I mean, when we make our own album, we expect people to listen to <laughs> yeah. it like we used to listen to albums, not like we now listen to it. A bit naive, really. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we did, we, we, all the thought processes we went through about the songs, which songs should be on the album and in what order they should come and, and whether or not the album had an overriding theme is something that, yeah, we spent ages thinking about. <laughs> so ho- hopefully somebody else... <laughs> I, I was going to ask you about that, um, with the opening track again, with the uh, we we're talking about the vocal harmonies that these they're really present on this track. Um, and one of my questions was, what 
what was it that made you choose Face on the Rail Line as the opener for the album? Um, it seems to be the one that, it's, I think it's one of those songs when we first did it. So I, it's one of the ones that I made up. So it was just me and the guitar. And then very quickly when we first played it with Andy and Faye and Ian, they all started singing. So the harmonies were there really early on. Um, and it, uh, it's the most, I, I was really excited. It was such an amazing feeling because it was feel like the song was being played back to me, if you know what I mean. And we were doing our thing, but it was suddenly so much bigger than it had been as a result of their participation that it, I think that for me, that's why, just because it, it was, when we first played it with everybody, it was the one that suddenly came to life in a way that was probably more exciting. And whether that is conveyed in the actual recording, I, I don't really know, but. Ed, Ed liked it, so it, yeah. the LP is on shelf life as well. And I know that Ed is pretty, you know, objective, sensible person. He was quite keen for it to be a single, um, and therefore it makes sense for it to be the first one on the album. Um, yeah. he, he liked it. Yeah, it's certainly quite a striking first thing. I think we were more excited about it than it possibly deserved because it's it's a bit more of a departure for us, I think, than some of the other songs on the album. So when it actually came out as good as it did, we were like, whoa, we we, we, kind of, we made a song like that. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Actually. We, we did, it's true when we listened to it back. And there's a lot of credit to Andy who, you know, who produced it. I mean, it's not an easy song to produce because there's so much going on, even though the song isn't that loud. I mean, all those voices and amazing keyboards weaving through. It, it was true when it, when we first played it back properly uh, to listen back to the mix, we did both go like, <laughs> well, we did that. <laughs> so we were a bit, um, I think we were a bit like that joke Pete used to make about like when, it, you know, when a guitarist is doing a solo and he looks at his hands as if like in amazement at what his hands are doing. It's like, <laughs> I think we probably felt a bit like that. It's like, whoa, whoa, look what we did. <laughs> so yeah, in a way it's probably a foolish one because I think, well, People, some people really, really like it, and then they might not like the rest of the album so much because it's not necessarily that representative of us on the album. On the yes. other hand, one one DJ in the UK, uh, Mark Riley, he, he said there that he actually didn't like it, so he wasn't quite sure that he was going to listen to the rest of the album. We kind of basically begged him to listen to the rest of the album, which he really likes. So it's not, you know, it's. I think actually, what's interesting about the album is there's quite a lot of different slightly different styles i mean you can tell it's us and and you know it's the same songwriters and same singers same players but it, they the songwriter goes and each song goes in a slightly different direction um and i think therefore there are songs i would hope that people would like the whole album but i think there are certainly songs that people that some people will like a bit more than others but it will be different ones for each each person mm. i like that one a lot it's definitely the most Countryish feel on the record. Yeah, it, it just, I mean, it, it kind of, <laughs> it sounds kind of, it sounds like it's in a different genre to other things that, that we've done. Um, and I think it's partly, and a lot of it's to do with the vocals and al allowing all the harmonies to be so strong. But also, the other thing that the band did, so the rhythm behind it was something that Andy and Ian worked in underneath that sort of scrappy guitar. And I was quite—I wasn't quite expecting it the way they went with it. It was—it's a—it's a—I don't know how to describe the rhythm of it. It's quite unusual. But again, when that first happened, I was like, "Whoa!" It was, it's like—it's like getting on a ride and 
going off somewhere that you weren't necessarily expecting to go, but it's definitely put it into a different space. It, it made it feel very different. I think the other thing I like about it is it really feels to me like like driving on the open road, like with American old, old uh, you know, old, oldies radio on and a kind of almost possibly an open top car or something, but just like on the road. But what actually the lyrics are about is a quite claustrophobic, someone on train kind of cutting in and out of connection and you kind of looking at this looking at a little icon going down the train on an app on your phone so it's it's just kind of it's quite digital it's quite claustrophobic almost the opposite of this kind of it's got Mm. travel in it of a sort but it's really different to that wide open road and I kind of like that juxtaposition yeah that's right also because the 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 lyrics are kind of very a very modern paranoia. I mean, you couldn't write a song about anxiety about where somebody is via an app <laughs> until about two years ago. But the, <laughs> the music sounds like it comes from a different period altogether. I quite like that. Yeah. That sort of yeah. Like the incongruous sort of combination. So that's that's yeah that's that's one of the reasons I like it. I can't imagine anybody dancing to it. You'd, you'd, you'd struggle. It's not the most dancing. No. No, <laughs> there's maybe one or two you could just about dance <laughs> you, could, you, could stagger, you could stagger around a bit either in an alcoholic haze or maybe yeah which is a, like 90% of dancing yeah. <laughs> it's true because we've been to various lockdown discos you know in fact we helped put one on for our 80s thing but and then and it's, it's people who do discos then you click on the zoom link to look at all the people dancing and it's just loads of people sat in a chair to maybe doing that a bit yeah so yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's maybe that it's probably about right for that it's given a new meaning to the word disco actually because online <laughs> online so discos in real life they try and make music that's danceable because you know that's the point whereas online discos why bother yeah. so actually it's just basically let's let's put on some music we really really like yeah. that people are going to appreciate and it doesn't really matter if dance you're danceable or not no it's true <laughs> i was going to ask you um Along with the press material, you also sent out a brief historical and etymological guide with notes on pronunciation, which is something I think all bands should do. <laughs> it's a good idea. Um, and referring to the Berlin Glaps chalk cliffs, you say, many of England's insecurities and neuroses are apparent here. And I was thinking, one might say the same thing of an indie disco. Probably a fair comment. Yeah, I, I I find I find discos sort of quite anxious, even now. I mean, I find I find the online ones not anxious at all because then you can go, and, you know, make a cup of tea or just turn it off for a bit. And also, you can chat with people on online ones because you, you can do chat. I'm, I'd much rather chat with people than dance with them because, when I'm da- I don't dance very much, but I never know where to look because if you're dancing like with your girlfriend, do you look at her? Is that, is that weird? I mean. It's, it reaches there's a, it reaches creepy quite soon, doesn't it? Because if you stare into each other's eyes while you're dancing, that's kind of a bit weird. If you don't look at them at all, that's also a bit rude. So I, I yeah, I've got this is not an issue I've ever worried about. I have. I totally know what you mean. Yeah. And then you've given up on the dancing because you don't know where to look and you feel a bit tired. And then you can't you can't talk to anybody because it's too loud. So you know. I kind of don't miss discos at all. So I quite like online discos, partly because I'm usually jiggling around uh, in the background. But um, I actually don't really like the the, the, the talking because I'm always, I don't know, I don't, 
I'm always worried that Rob's really good at it. Basically, he's very good at little one-liner quips. I, I I'm not. <laughs> I write something and then I thought, oh, was that funny? No, that wasn't funny. Oh, and, then, and then and then I rewrite about eight times and then the conversation has moved on. <laughs> so I'm not like that. In, in normal communication, I'm not like that. You know, some people are. So some people are the kind of people that have to think so hard about what they're going to say and then, then the conversation has moved on. I'm not like that in normal life, but I am like that in online discourse. And in fact, anything where you're typing fast in a conversation, mm. I just, yeah. My brain didn't work fast enough. Well, I mean, I, 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 I think that your point about the neurosis associated with discos, I think we've just shown that to be true. Because, uh, <laughs> I quite like them. I mean, like, I mean, like going to How Does It Feel, you know, which has got those people we know there, it's quite friendly. They always play good music. But I still feel a little bit shifty after a bit because I don't know. I don't know what to do with myself, really. <laughs> and... Uh, Sometimes you start dancing to a song, you think, oh, I don't actually like this song. And then you can't stop because it's really rude to sort of like just go, oh, this is shit. <laughs> you know what? This is not a good song. There is that is I, I actually quite enjoy that about this because there is always that moment where you go, you you always, there's the, there's the moment where a new song comes in and you're trying to work out what it is. And then you think you recognize it and you think, yeah. And then you start dancing and then you go, oh no, that's the song I really hate. <laughs> and then you're not sure what to do. But then, do, I quite do, like do, that. but then do you worry that you seem to have endorsed the song that is rubbish? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> More neurosis. I mean, the fact is, I mean, you're quite good at dancing and I'm rubbish. That's that's the main thing. Like, you like dancing and I... Uh, I'm not good at dancing, but I do like it. Well, you're quite good. I mean, better than me. That's not very difficult. <laughs> I'm a terrible dancer. Really bad dancer. But despite all this... One can find love it in indie disco as as mirror balls shows. Yeah, that was that was based on when on on my birthday a few years ago. Um, my sister just told me she was going to take me out for a great night out. It was all a bit of a joke, and it turns out there was an eighties disco about twenty yards away that that she was taking me to. That was it, it was a really funny because we both went and my sister and her partner went. And it's all hilarious because it was a really, it's a really cheesy eighties disco, you know. And so we went there, and there's pictures of like Kylie on the poster and stuff. And um, and we went there and sat there and watched for a bit. And it was so depressing that we just left. And then, but then we had we went to the pub and had some drinks, and then went back. And of course now it became fun. But it was it was it was kind of hellish and brilliant at the same time because the it was all the music you hated from the eighties, like played really loud with the occasional song like Ghost Town coming through that you go, ah, this is the one I loved. And it reminds you of those days when you didn't really have any ability to edit what you heard because what the radio played or what the DJ played was what you got. Mm. Um, and uh, But the other thing that was really striking about it was that the 80s disco obviously attracted a lot of people who were divorcees who'd been to discos when they were young. And now they're back on the market again. And in a way, the, and so the kind of, the behaviour was really quite similar to what it had been like when when you first heard those songs. So yeah, there's blokes lurking at the bar, clearly checking out anybody that they fancied and and women dancing handbags on the floor and dancing with each other mainly for sort of sort of production. Because I think discos are quite I don't know, they're sort of I think I think I mean I'm I don't know, I'm not a woman, but you you, you can sense there's a kind of there's a predatoriness about them. So the blokes line up around the edge to watch the women dancing and there's something grim about it. 
But it's interesting because actually yeah. it is a bit of a singles. It is a bit of a singles thing, and you go there to get a, a partner to some extent. Yeah. But then when you get there, you kind of back out of that idea, and 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 you go into single sex kind of groups. Yeah. I don't want it, don't, which actually. When you were a teenager, it made total sense. But by the time you're in your fifties, it's a bit odd. But then, but there was also, <laughs> but there's living in the same town. There was a couple we knew who did meet like that. Who then, they both had been married and got divorced, and were not really sure they'd ever meet anybody else. But then they did meet, and they you know, they had a really lovely time. And so, and I find it really poignant, nice that that they managed to kickstart a relationship in their middle age just as anxious and just as nerve-wracking as it was probably even more so than when they were teenagers. Um, and the soundtrack to that would have been these old, these old songs. And so I think that I was trying to trying to find balance between the, the visceral loathing for songs that you still think are terrible with, <laughs> with the kind of feeling of warmth you feel towards people who are there who really want to meet someone. And quite often don't, but sometimes do. You know, there's a sort of, and then suddenly it's all all right. And the, and the absolutely terrible song that was playing becomes the soundtrack to the start of a new relationship. And then it's a great song. Yeah. So. And then the other thing that I, I find interesting about 80s discos is the fact, I mean, it's such an obvious fact, but I've, I've, I've only realised it quite so extremely recently, which is how many people only really like the music that continue to like for the rest of their life. <laughs> the music that they liked kind of in their late teenage or early 20s and they never kind of move on but they're passionate about that and so people go to the 80s discos you know, they love it but it's like nothing ever happened in the 90s or the noughties but yeah it's um yeah we i mean we're i guess all because we've stayed in music so we've carried on liking music like that so actually we've got friends of different ages who we can talk equally excitedly about the music that they like, if you see what I mean. But they can't talk to each other very well because they're different ages and they either like stuff that was in the 80s or they like stuff from the 90s. I still struggle to talk to people about rave music. Oh, yeah, that's the bit we didn't do very well. We, we, we clocked out for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I wouldn't know what to say. <laughs> yeah. What are some of the 80s songs that you love? Well, I can tell you one that I found I really loved because we put we did that we curated if that's the right word that we that disco online disco for how does it feel which was our eighties disco and the song that I loved most that it wasn't one of my suggestions we got lots of other people to suggest songs as well and was Homo Sapien by Pete Shelley because oh. I'd, I'd sort of liked it at the time and I'd kind of forgotten about it and then hearing that again I thought wow that is like it's got all the melodic power of a Buzzcock song and it's got this kicking sort of like electric pulsing beat to it. And it's a kind of really subtle but powerful anthem smuggled into this, you know, disco inferno. I thought, I thought that was, that was, that was the song that really blew me away when I heard it again. I've, I've listened to it quite, I've done that thing of listening to it about 20 times since as well. It's became, it became the song I had to hear all the time. I love it. Yeah, it was, it was, it was quite funny when we did this 80s disco to, you know, to, to celebrate Mirabal coming out because we kept thinking 80s music had to be like pop music. So we were doing, which I guess it made sense because it was a disco. So we were doing, you know, Human League and Kylie Minogue and things like that. We were trying to do the, the good side of those things. So, you know, we did 
I I liked, you know, Human League. I loved the Pet Shop Boys. Um, but um, actually, we suddenly realised that, of course, we were of an age in the 80s and there was a DC. And in fact, while all those bands were in the charts, what we were actually listening to <laughs> was Orange Juice and Aztec Camera and the Pastels and the Jesus and Mary Jane. <laughs> and actually, we've reinvented this 80s for ourselves that wasn't actually our lived experience mm. because our lived experience was an indie one. I think my favourite <laughs> favorite song, because like, we, we, so we ended up starting off with the kind of, the, yeah, the hits, the sort of Kylie and the stuff. And then by the end, I think my favourite one, towards the latter stages was Sleepy Town by the Blue Orchids. And I loved Sleepy Town by the Blue Orchids and probably not that many other people necessarily will have heard it, but it sounded great. It was like, it deserved to be there and it, and Annie could adapt to it. It was a really weird disco because we start we decided to start out like a proper old style 80s disco. So it was, you know, um, the, the really mainstream stuff. And then we got more and more obscure. So by the end we were doing stuff that, that you know, seriously, <laughs> I'd ever heard of and one of the people I mean I think it went down pretty well but someone did say this is like the reverse of a normal disco <laughs> normally you get all the obscure things out at the start and you do the big <laughs> the big power hits later <laughs> but yeah it yeah. seemed to work <laughs> do you remember the the song you heard that made you fall in love with music mm. Oh, it's probably yesterday once more by the Carpenters. Really? Because my dad had that record, and I, and I, in, a, in my house when I was a little kid, so most of my time my dad would jazz record Django Reinhardt, which I really, also really loved. But when when friends came round, they would put on, I guess, sort of the way people did the more easy listening kind of stuff. Um, and one of the things they had one now and then the Carpenters album, I think it's now and then a, a Carpenters album, and that that song. I found incredibly moving and I thought it was so brilliant. I was probably about seven or something, but I thought this is amazing. Her voice actually. Um, yeah, that was the song I made for Louisa. That's really interesting. So like, because I was probably a similar age, I really loved the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper album and in particular, A Day in the Life. Um, and I knew, but I knew all the words of the whole thing. I had the, like, the thing that comes out of the middle that had all the words on, so I learned the whole thing. But I don't know... I don't know if I exactly, I just, music was just part of our life. So I don't know if I really loved it in the same way. I think that probably the first song that I just listened to time and time again and cried and got all emotional to is probably Falling and Laughing by Orange. So that was probably, I know that sounds quite late on, but that was the one where it really cemented. Um, I, I was pretty into music by then, but I guess that was the one that really got me and really was like music could mean pretty much everything to mm. me. Um, and that album, I actually played so much that it broke. And then I thought, shall I, shall I, I literally broken half. And I thought, shall I um, replace it? And I actually decided not to, because I thought I would probably be psychologically better off not to have it for a while. <laughs> and then when we got together, anyway, so we've now got it again. But <laughs> I'm sorry, can we get rid of it? No, it's okay. I can manage now. <laughs> it's, it's weird that there are songs like that. I have a like a list of like six or seven that I know I shouldn't put on because it'll be just too intense an experience. It's really weird. Yeah. And like, I've tried to revisit them and to overcome that because they're usually great songs, but it's like too, yeah, it's a, a place I don't want to go, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah. I can listen to the carters now with that. Yeah, but then, <laughs> you can manage but, the carters. Obviously, the tragedy of it keeps on giving because you. I, I love that song, and then when you're older, you find out about the tragedy of her life, and then, and then the song seems even more. I do still find that song quite traumatic to listen to, partly because I can remember how I felt when I first heard it, and partly because now I know what was going on, what potentially was going on behind the scenes in her life when that song was being done. It just seems tragic. This week I have been thinking to myself, though, is baby, 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 oh baby, um, the greatest lyric ever written. Mm. At least from a pop sense. Yeah, it is pretty good. <laughs> no, we're all going to start crying now. Was there a song or album you heard that made you realize that you wanted to, to do music as part of your life? Like this was this was it from now on. I think for me it was probably, although I didn't know if I would be able to do it at that point, but it was probably the Altered Images album. Um, it was a really big Altered Images, the first one. I was a really big Altered Images fan, um, and I just loved that album. But it was the first album where I kind of could vaguely see how they'd done it. I mean, I couldn't really see how they'd done it. And I think it probably took going and seeing bands like the Pastels to kind of go, yeah, I think I actually could do that. I really can see how they're doing that. Yeah. But with with altered images, I just, I guess, I just saw Claire Grogan. I went to see them a lot on uh, live as well, and I saw her on stage. And while she was the goddess to me, I kind of, I wanted to be her. And I kind of thought if I somehow did something, then maybe I could be her. So she was probably, yeah, my 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 my, my style guide, my, what I wanted to be. <laughs> I didn't. I, I think the LP that I remember hearing is probably the first Joy Division album, actually. So when I got Unknown Pleasures, because I think me and my friend Tim were teenagers, so a band, and I had a bass, and it's similar actually, because on that record you can hear exactly what the bass is doing, exactly yeah. what the it's all very looted, and the, the bass lines are quite easy. So I'm sure like a hundred thousand people, I was going dum 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 yeah, and playing the two note, three note bass line from Transmission a lot. And so, yeah, and that, because it seemed, because obviously it's an amazing record and it sort of transcends its simplicity because the songs are so great. But at the same time, you could easily work out what they were doing if you, you picked out the guitar part and the bass part. Was, the the kit of parts was really pretty obvious. So, yeah, that made, it was it, quite accessible in that respect because it was intense and brooding and powerful. And yet you could see how they did it because the, the production was clear. And it started, <laughs> Disorder is such a great bass line too. Oh, it amazing. Is. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's timeless, really. The thing that album always reminds me of, which is why well, maybe I don't love it quite as much as you, is <laughs> that my boyfriend of the time, who was obsessed with it, decided to perform, uh, to create an, a stage <laughs> piece. This is so bad. Where, where, which was all like mimed um, scenes with <laughs> with Joy Division music in the background. So he he was at school while we were at school, and um, he got the school to kind of support it. Um, and so I was like a pregnant lady walking around, and I was on a tube trailer. We were all moving around, and, like I was rubbish at acting, but you didn't really need to act for this. It was just kind of daft. Um, and he filmed it. And he was sure it was going to get on TV. <laughs> we were like, oh, we're going to get on TV with our thing. And I, 
I re- I actually haven't seen a film of her. I think there might be a film around, and I'm sure it is absolutely excruciating. But I cannot le- hear that album without remembering. I don't, I don't know if I can hear it again. Now without, without about <laughs> he ruined it for me. <laughs> yeah, it might have been great. <laughs> Just have to check on YouTube. Yeah, I actually have. He hasn't, but I, I am in contact with him. I might ask him if he's got a copy. <laughs> <laughs> so we should get to some other of the songs. So skipping around a bit. Second track, Alpine. Tell me about your feelings about the winter because Marine Research also had Angel in the Snow. Yeah, that's true. It's um, true. Because the words... Alpine is like a kind of, it's like a nightmarish love song, I suppose. It's about people, it's about, I suppose it's about, oh, this is going to sound a bit complicated, but it's quite an abstract lyric. But with the idea behind it, I suppose, is that if three-wheel car is a is it the couple in three-wheel car, that's what we decided to do, because we do duets. And so on this record, rather than us being us or versions of us, we are other people completely. So... In Three Wheel Car, we're a kind of couple who are patriots of a certain kind who love England and want to talk about how much they love England um, to the exclusion of all else. And in Alpine, I suppose the LP was written when the, the Brexit debate was going on. So and the country was splitting into quite tribal factions, those who were all for leaving the EU and all those who wanted to stay in Europe. And, and the tone of voice of both sides was kind of pretty grim at, at times. So the leavers became xenophobic and would sometimes racist um, and small-minded uh, and Remainers would become patronising and complacent. Tended to, the most vocal ones tended to be middle-class people who'd done quite well out of globalisation and probably had a Romanian cleaner. You know, there was a sort of, there was a, a really nasty tone to both. And so the couple in our line are two people who I imagine really love going on skiing holidays yeah, because they were they loved being able to go to Europe and they could afford to go to Europe and have skiing holidays. Their relationship ends up being nothing more than a kind of frozen image on a mountainside where I imagine they've fallen off their skis and got covered in snow and died. So it's a kind of it's about a timeless moment for people who have wanted to move on and who are too complacent about their own relationship to see what might be flawed about it. And Rob wrote the words to Alpine. So, I wrote the words to Angel of the Snow, but I can't remember what they're about at all. So completely opposite. <laughs> Your, yours were from, they were from a poem. Angel of the Snow, were they? I thought you nicked them from a poem. Uh, oh, maybe not. Like, not that one, I don't think. That was Parallel Horizontal. Oh, sorry, yeah. Um, a long time ago. Um, but it, so it was just, you know, you make snow angels. Um, I think it was a romantic one usually were. I think that, yeah, I think because snow, I think that, I think we were watching... I think we've been watching, um, is it the omen that starts with the ice? There's the, the, the scene of the, of the, of the, the, the omen. trapped under the ice. And I think it's that, not, it's, yeah, omen three, I think. Maybe omen three. <laughs> anyway, there's, a, there's something beautiful and terrifying about snowy, icy landscapes because they're perfect, but they're also, you know, that you get stuck in them or you might freeze to death in them. I kind of think they're really ambivalent. So. Yeah, it's true. I, I yeah. I, I also in general, I I like winter. Sorry, I don't like winter. 
I'm a very summery summer person, but I do like snow. So I think maybe that's the snow is the one good thing about the winter. It's kind of it has so, the benefit of, and that's why you write Christmas songs. Yeah, lie. Snow's <laughs> good because it's the time when you're a kid when you just can't go to school because the bus can't get through the snow. So the snow is like a blessing because it it brings everything to a grinding halt. Yeah, and I, I remember really appreciating the snow when I was a kid because if the bus can't get to you, then you don't have to go to school and you just play yeah. in the snow. Especially, it was, we used one day of what we now have all the time from the pandemic. But when we got just one day of it occasionally where we couldn't go anywhere or do anything, it was really exciting. <laughs> it's got a bit more. Yeah. You mentioned Grinding Halt, and the other band I was going to ask you about mentioned in the press release is The Cure. Mm. Oh, yeah. That that was a band that I listened to whole albums of <laughs> a lot. I was a huge Cure fan and went and saw them everywhere. Um, but we only mentioned them because they did that uh, that video. I don't think the album has a lot of no. similarity to the Cure more generally. No, because they they were attracted to Berlin Gap or to Beachy Head, which is the cliff, yeah, which is the, those steep chalk cliffs. It's a sort of that terrifying sort of vertiginous image when you look. You think you, it's one of those places when you walk there, you think you're going to fall over, even if you don't. It's sort of yeah. you're almost you're being drawn to the. To the get to the gap to, to to jump over to fall in and um and yeah they use that in their in their videos although we've now found out that they are fakers they did it in a studio because they did it in a studio so tim pope went and did all the filming of beat of beat of uh, beachy head and berlin gap and then he went and yeah just filmed them in elm street studios or something so yeah well, just as well, they actually, never went if, if you look at the video they were in a very big half at that point <laughs> if there had been a gust of wind from the north they'd have been gone i reckon for health and safety reasons they had to do it the video with, with hair with hair like you know sails uh, well yeah i was a huge huge cure fan well before actually or maybe the cures should have been my answer earlier instead of orange juice because they, they were the band that i went with me my best friend vicky we just traveled all around to see them and that was probably the first band that we we properly traveled all over the place including because we were so young and we didn't really have the ability to get around we had, had to force my parents to drive us around so my parents saw the queue lots of times as well they must <laughs> i think i think the queue member being i loved them when i was you know when i was that age and i loved the first album and i love the band i've gone off most most rapidly so i loved 17 seconds and then the next lp they did was like gothic rubbish it was just that's like, what i liked it was so crap <laughs> I, I it went from being really bands to i hated most when i was about I don't know, 17 and then they made the most amazing singles after that they did just some good singles it's true i think the conversation i've had most in my life i spent countless hours over countless years at countless parties debating what's the best cure album well the answer is probably the first one <laughs> <laughs> It's highly contested from many people I've spoken with. Yes, I, mean, I, I had a kind of like I had a loathing of all things goth from a very early age. So once they once they went off that down that road, I hated it. All the bands, bands I loved sort of started doing that, like Killing Joke. The first Killing Joke LP is one of the best records ever made, and then they start wearing sort of Harlequin outfits and <laughs> getting all sort of goth clowny, and it's terrible. <laughs> 
that was another great band that just went turned into kind of like vaudeville crap. It was such a shame. But it's funny that, that those are my feelings about it. For me, the cure, and I, maybe this is shows just where I was in my life. In my life, but I know the first three albums really well, and probably I know Faith the absolute best because oh, I because yeah. uh, that I was just the right age, and that's what the tour we went and saw them loads, and so I just knew it. You know, I just remember lying in my on on my back in my bed, feeling depressed and listening to Faith. Um, that's kind of my teenage formative experience. You, you, you deserve to be depressed, but but <laughs> but actually, you know, the mostly what I listen to by the Cure now is their singles that came after that that I absolutely love. Well, I actually don't even know what album they're from because I've only listened to the singles. I have the singles, but I don't know what album they're on. I was a huge run of singles after that. Because they got pop again after Faith. Yeah, it is. I, I got a lot of them, but I didn't. I didn't buy any more albums. So I kind of like I was too scared in case there might be like one pop song and then like <laughs> sort of fifth goth songs. So I didn't risk an album. I've not heard all their albums at all. I've got I've got letters from I think I've got two letters from Robert Smith upstairs that I I ought to do something with at some point. Because they were brilliant. I don't know. We'll just put them online. People would be interested. They 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 were brilliant. They they you 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 could write them letters, and they would write really quite detailed letters back. And as you know, as a teenager, that was just amazing. So I write and asking them about Camus and you know other highly pretentious things, and they would they would you know respond. I would love to hear Robert Smith's thoughts on Camus in his letter to you. (laughs) Next podcast. (laughs) <laughs> I, I've never seen that. I, I, I I'll take them out. Yeah. <laughs> <Sure>. Wow. Amazing what you find. I don't <laughs> think Camry was doing a lot of listening to The Cure at that time. You should have asked him what he thought of The Cure. <laughs> <laughs> Canterbury Lanes. I really like it. Really nice song, but it really continues to confuse the issue that catenary wires I read as Canterbury Wives. <laughs> was yeah. that on purpose? <laughs> no, it wasn't. I'm, I'm very sorry. Um, had someone else, there was another another journalist that she wrote to me today to confess that he's, he's written about us before and he he was he thought that we were the Canterbury wires all this time, and he finally realised <laughs> that we weren't. And he's written really nice things about us. So it's clearly a, it's a stupid name for a band. I mean, it's like it's it yeah. clearly it's not pronounceable. It's pronounced differently in America and England, and nobody knows what it is. But so, I mean, but, now that you're sending out etymological guides with pronunciation well, notes, might as well make the most of it. <laughs> jokes, jokes at our own expense. It's a stupid name. Um, so yeah, yeah, Canterbury Canterbury Lanes. Because we live quite near Canterbury. I mean, it's the nearest, one of the nearest big towns. And um, the song, because the song was about, I got, <laughs> another magpie thing we did, was like, I got interested in the Canterbury scene. So there were, you know, a set of bands in the early 70s that were doing somewhere between folk and prog. Um, and Caravan? White. Yeah, Caravan, Caravan was yeah. The big, probably the most famous band to come out of it. But Robert White was part of it, mm. who I've always really loved. And obviously he, did lots of other things, did lots of other things since. And so they're quite a set of very talented, quite muso-y individuals. I mean, they could, they played they played a form of modern jazz, really. It's never been the kind of music I liked, but there was something... Uh, when you go to Canterbury now, 
you know, it's, a, it's a beautiful town with a cathedral, but it's it's completely dead as far as music's concerned, or it appears to be. There's no gigs, and it's weird that this town, for a brief period in the seventies, hosted this, you know, incredibly productive, but and seven. politically idealistic. I yeah, mean. yeah, and it's kind of it's the and it was the, so the song was about the trying to imagine or reimagine the kind of idealism of that they would have felt doing what they were doing in the seventies, and then the strange things that have happened, how, how strange punk would have been to them. You know, because I was into punk and I was into new wave stuff, and so I hated all that stuff, like you had to. Um, and so to go and make yourself listen to Caravan now is a bit of an effort, because it's, it's the sort of music you were against. You were sort of a tribal youth and you were... Andy bought us an album of yeah, that music. Yeah. Well, we were making. Well, we were making this album. Andy, Andy forced us. It's really good, it. and it's it's a very good compilation because it's a whole set. It's very diverse, but it's it's all from that period, that pre-punk period, that sort of before our time, and was we would have thought of as a, a sort of prehistory to be junked um, when we were sort of like you know new wave punky people. And so it's, it's an album put together by Bob Stanley from St Etienne. Yeah. He's obviously kind of rediscovered that ages era as well so yeah so it's a kind of yeah so that's that's what it's about it's about it's, it's, it's a couple again so it's a couple it's, i mean it's not about any particular band but two people who would have been in one of these bands as partners and, you know they were singing and playing gigs around europe and then it all fell apart and so it's about it's about various things falling apart other than just the band mm. um, I- about nostalgia and, yeah. and what might have been and those sorts of things and also, it's a kind of strange city because it is so dominated by the cathedral. You know, it's the, it's the capital of Christianity in England. So the, the bells and the architectural beauty can give you a kind of a slightly hazy, unrealistic sense of what the world's like because it's... But that's also probably why there's no decent music scene there because it's incredibly controlled by the church. And, you know, ah. that's, they have noise. I quite like... Well, I've never thought about it before, but I think... And basically, I think that is a that is a city where anything new and vibrant has been destroyed by religion. Essentially. Well, it is it is I mean it is dominated by the church, mm. which makes it beautiful architecturally. Yeah, you know, they hit those bells pretty hard when they ring them, so it's kind of yeah. There's a passion of a sort. There, there are always bells ringing in Canterbury. There's the cathedral. there's really great music in the cathedral yeah. if you like classical music that you would play in a cathedral. Yeah. <laughs> but, I like yeah. the bells on the track. Yeah, that's yeah, true. Yeah, very nice. Got, got the bells in. Yeah, that was nice. So yes, yeah, just a little, just a little, little sort of um, vignette of a of a yeah. of part of the English his, English history and the English music history that was very potent for a while and then just sort of vanished. Or although somebody told me there's about to be again another journalist guy I was talking to said that the the caravan. They're planning on re-releasing a 37 album box set. What? <laughs> they did 37 albums. Ooh. How big is that? Um, so maybe maybe that maybe the time's come again. Maybe people are I think people are a bit more into it. You know what? With with um lockdown and people are buying books by the yard to have their to put on their bookshelves behind them for their background <laughs> on Zoom. So maybe Caravan think that you know they, they can sell albums by the yard well, that's a lot makes you realize where it takes so long to get records pressed it's, just... <laughs> it's, <terrible. laughs> it's taken up the yeah. entire pressing issues coming out on vinyl for people who probably already got it mm. so yeah 
So I'm glad you like the song though. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a slightly eccentric song really, but yeah. I'm glad you like it. My two favorites are the last two. Uh, are they? Yes. Like the rain and overview effect. Like the rain. I really like the chorus of Like the Rain and the overall sparseness of the song. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that was, I think, I think I'd sort of give some credit to Andy, producer Andy, for that because we, we, because we, we, on this album for the first time, we had the full band playing right from the get go. So, but we managed to avoid doing what often I've often you end up doing, which is having all the band playing all the time when you've got mm. everybody. So, we kept a lot of space in it, and there's quite a spindly little guitar that just about holds it together. It, it, yep. it could have been bolstered by more architectural things, but it just it's, it's just about enough to keep it sort of suspended there. And he did that quite skillfully. It's quite a hard thing to do, I think, production-wise, to make a song work like that without yeah. having. Yeah, I think we were also with like the rain. So overview effect is is kind of I guess a more standard indie song. Um, but the like the rain, I think that it's quite folky sounding for us. And I think there's quite a few. So I said on the, the the album is quite various in terms of its approach. And I think that was a particular one where we decided to go as far as we could, as far as we were comfortable <laughs> in this particular direction. But yeah. we weren't entirely comfortable. So kind of, you kind of, I, I quite like the fact that you, you you know if you were really comfortable with being a folk band, you'd just make a folk a folk song. But we're not comfortable, so that's the result of that kind of but tension. I think, again, and then, yeah, it's good. I, I that is good because the because the song is about discomfort of it's about people who've happily listened to that kind of music for so long and suddenly realised that while they were sitting around know, listening to that stuff and, and loving it, the world's kind of decayed around them and. I think that there's, I think people who listen to certain kinds of music are guilty of, and I'm, I'm the same. I mean, you kind of, it makes you, it makes you feel the world's okay um, when the world isn't. And there's one yeah. particular in that song, which was because we look, we look, we because we, we were looking at famous duetists, you know, just to see how they do things. And we were looking at uh, Nancy and Lee, and that the video for some Bubble Morning is, is that crazy video of him riding on his horse and her and her I don't know looking sexy and some flowers. I, I think remember. she might be on the horse. Well, she, no, he's on the horse because he's he's this mustachioed mm. guy coming on the horse. And so the lines about I can't remember the lines are about sort of Californian days. It's like it's mm. a kind of it's looking back at a video of a time when the West, I mean it happens to be California, can present itself as this kind of romantic idyll and California in particular. Um and now being a place where you know drought and fire threatens, and so your well perception of a place is doesn't hasn't quite caught up with the reality of what actually is going on. Yeah, and also obviously the California digital centre as yeah. well, which is not kind of what you think when you think of California. You think of beaches and beach boys, things like the beach boys and stuff. You don't think of mm. well now you do think of like Silicon Valley, but you you, you wouldn't have in the sixties that. Your, your 60s idea of California is mm. really different. So it feels like a place that, and, and California is only typical of the Western wilderness. So it trades off, it trades off of a version of kind of an idyllic liberty, mm. um, where you can you can do beautiful things, ride stallions on beaches, and 
grow your moustache as copious as you like and it's and there's nothing really to worry about um and now i don't know i mean obviously there were things to worry about but the I suppose both of those songs actually are about the environment. I mean, it sounds a bit well, That's boring, what I was going to say. Are, they are both about about people trying to work out how to cope with certain knowledge that the the world in which they live is is in trouble. Um, yeah, because the whole album is kind of about things falling apart about a bit, but those two, yeah, are specifically about yeah um, the destruction that we are um, mm. that we're not paying due attention to so the overview effect is is the um the it, it is what astronauts are said to feel when they look back at the earth from space um and see it as a kind of beautiful but actually quite delicate thing just hanging there um and so i i heard the term and i thought that you know, i thought that was really interesting um, and that apparently one of the things that I end up thinking about is, you know, the fact that it, it could so easily just destroy itself, um, which is, yeah, mm. a very significant risk. So, um, yeah. So I suppose, yeah, I suppose they are, I mean, we're clearly not, I mean, not a sort of messagey kind of band. And, no. and it's kind of, I suppose both the songs are trying to work out how to feel something about that rather than, I mean, we get we get told a lot of it. We get a lot of information, and we, we all know that you know we're in danger of overheating the planet, and it could be immensely destructive, which is a cold, awful, hard fact. But then, it, I suppose both those songs are trying to work out, trying to dramatise how people might feel about that. So they're not they're not about they're not about what they should do next. They're just about how emotionally out of sync we are with the reality we live in and how we. Yeah. take refuge in things aren't much use anymore but they give us a kind of a sort of comfort yeah if that makes sense yeah how do you guys feel about california because it's it's very different from <laughs> england <laughs> where you are a really great time because we've played gigs in la and san francisco and sacramento and i i, I loved it um i loved it because I, i've been there for two reasons because i mean in my day job when I was making TV, I had to go to California sometimes to meet people, you know, to talk about programs. And and I'm very, very glad that I got to... I'd been to LA before then and played gigs in the underground part of LA where, where the people hang out. So if you just went to LA for for work, you know, as a media person, you, you wouldn't think much of it. You'd think, you'd think, oh, God, this is an awful place. <laughs> But I was really glad that I've been there before beforehand to play. So you met people who went to get to it was yeah. um but very particular place, isn't it? It's kind of it's different to anywhere I've ever been. Well we haven't been to California I think we've been to California since our kids were born, which was no, it's a long time ago. Twenty years. So we, we, and it's obviously massively changed. So yeah, I used to and I actually never liked LA terribly much, I have to admit. But I did really, really love uh, San Francisco. Um, and I, you know, I've been there lots of times. My old boy, Pete, lives in San Francisco. So we used to often, quite often just the two of us and, and see him, even apart from going there. And, and I went there with work one time. So mm. and I've just, I just, I used to just kind of go wander around. 
doing it and Berkeley as well I really really love or Berkeley Berkeley I really really love um and Sacramento I just all these places but they're probably all completely different now mm, it's been a long time hopefully we'll come back I mean we have talked about yeah, at the moment it seems crazy about talking about going anywhere but the idea of maybe next year going and playing would be a fun mm. thing it might be possible yeah so I, I don't but I kind of, um, it, like Amy says, it's, it's a lot longer ago than I, than I realised that they're actually there. So my memories, well, they are memories rather than impressions, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean. But that's it. I, mean, I, just, I just had a lot of fun and met some, some really fantastic people. There was a marine research played at um, that club in LA where Vaginal Cram, Miss Vaginal Cram Davis was the host. It was an amazing sort of um, trans woman, quite tall black woman, who was the DJ? I can't remember what the club was called, but she was really into. She was a real Anglophile. She was really into indie music, um, and she was really into English literature. So, and I, I studied English literature. So I remember having these really weird conversations with this really imposing, very funny um, black trans woman about Thomas Hardy <laughs> after the soundtrack. It was, <laughs> and that that's my best from Rubelle because that was like. This is the kind of level of, of like craziness that you'd never get in this country. She's she's checked out on the um, on hot topic by La Tigra. They meant, yeah. that's she's one of the people ah. that they mentioned at the end. Okay. But she was hilarious to play with. So she was basically just <laughs> she, the compare of this gig. And she, she was bigger than the gig. She was bigger than the gig. I mean, I think people came to the gig just because she was the host. <laughs> but she also um, basically she had a, a, her mic went to the monitors during the gig, so the audience couldn't hear what she was saying. <laughs> And she basically made lascivious, <laughs> lascivious comments about the band, particularly uh, DJ. So, yeah, because DJ, the John was our drummer at the time. There was a, in between a song, there was some silence, and out of the monitor came, John, take your shirt off. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure how right on this was, but it was kind of it was hilarious. It was, I mean, <laughs> it was properly funny. <laughs> um, no, that that was uh, that's my best memory of LA. That yeah, like, that was very funny because you, you sort of like it was kind of brilliant because he because in in Britain there were big clubs where there are sort of trans people. This is a long time ago, you know. This was sort of God knows 20, 25 years ago. So, but the, the, where those people would be would not be where the indie bands would be. Mm. Yeah, because yeah. indie bands indie band venues are kind of yeah, it's full of shy people, not sort of like mm. really sort of flamboyant trans people and. um but in this club, they were all in the same place. It felt, I don't know if that says anything about LA, but it felt like this said something pretty good. <laughs> That's how it yeah. felt. I mean, that was a, you know, it's funny, isn't it? You, you I, think your, she, I think she was probably a bit unique, to be honest. Yeah, no, I've never met anybody like it. But it was, because, um, yeah, you have your fleeting impressions. They become your impressions of the entire place. But that's, that's, yeah. that's my yeah. one. It's funny because one of my favourite memories of Sacramento was playing in someone's basement with Tiger Strap when they were playing in in um, roller skates um, and actually then couldn't do their pedals because they had roller skates or they hadn't envisaged. So me and Kathy had to lie at the front of the stage um, and they basically had to nod at us when we wanted to do like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's my memory of Sacramento mostly is that lying in the front of someone's basement putting a, putting a pedal on and off but it was brilliant fun. so I just think Sacramento is a great place <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So what's coming up for you guys? Um, well, I mean, we've got, we've we've got a we've got a few we've got a few gigs booked for Catenary Wise to play, um, and they will be with Pete Adder, who's the guy in the loft, um, mm-hmm. who become quite good friends with, and also with Steve, who brought us a cup of tea earlier. With him, we play in European Sun. So the LP that we did with him last year came out a while ago, but we're going to play. So he'll be that'll be on the bill as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we've got the Swansea Sound album is now at the factory being made. So that will come out hopefully in November. Depending on Caravan. Yeah, I mean, there's a 37 LP <laughs> Caravan, then it'll probably come out in 2030. But um, we'll use that for the world's vinyl resources. But so that should be out in November. Um, and then <laughs> it's funny with Swansea Sound because obviously we still haven't met each other as a band. So um, we did think we it's only occurred to us that we might be able to play live because the band obviously has existed purely without having met. Um, and it was kind of quite, we were a bit, I think we were all a bit alarmed about the idea of having to actually meet and play, but we will play um, somehow or another. Uh, so that's good. So that's, that's all in, in hand. Um, and next we're going to record a few more songs with Steve, European Sun, um, and we'll start making up the next lot of continuity wise songs. There's a couple that are kind of, We've been, we've been sort of, yeah, we've kind of, we seem to switch. So we were big into Swansea Sound where we were getting that LP done, but it is now done. So I imagine we'll, we'll, we'll do some of Steve's songs and then right, there's, they do some more continuity wise songs. Um, and hope to meet up with the band this summer because we're not going to see them either. Um, but they should all be able to come here like next month. And so, uh, I mean, it's very exciting to see them because. I think the thing about the continuity was is that we've we've really been lucky because the three of them, Andy, Faye, and Ian, are pretty incredible musicians. So, um, like we were saying about facing the roll line, you put the song in front of them, and then twenty minutes later, there's a four-pipe harmony and an incredible rhythm happening, mm. yeah, almost before you've had a chance to get to the end of the song. And so, it's kind of exciting to be able to play with them again uh, and see where that goes. Uh, yeah, so that's 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 what's going on. And then with the label, like I say, we've got something in the works that isn't just about us, as it were. And so we'll see where that goes and whether whether we want to um, expand make it. more of the label than yeah. just our own records. It has, it has, it's good fun. I mean, it's a it's it's quite it's a lot of work, but I don't know. There's something quite nice about. I think we both felt during the pandemic that we've reached the point where we can, we can record everything. Obviously we make it all up. We can record it. We can make videos, you know, cheap videos, mm-hmm. we can do everything. And so it felt like doing the label as well. You may as well do all of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm very good at sort of getting the word out to people. And I'm quite good at writing funny press releases. So between us, we can, <laughs> we can do it. And it seems like a logical thing to, to do all of it because it all flows in, everything flows into everything else and I think I love the fact you can be playful with a label so because if you're in charge of how things come out then you can you can do something quite interesting the next Swansea Sound thing will actually be a single so we've Swansea Sound we've got a song called Swansea Sound which is about the radio station in Swansea Sound which was where we got our name from which was a, you know, the local station that closed down um, twist there the first of September is the anniversary of its closing. And the song is about the DJ going in for his last day of work at a radio station that won't exist 
the next ah. day. So we're going to put the single out on the 1st of September um, and hopefully try and put together an online radio, a COD radio thing. Yeah, with Codcast. Cod, Codcast. <laughs> um, but also we've got um, the the woman who designs all the stuff, is a really brilliant artist called Katrin, um, Saran Jen, she's she also sings. So the single will have the, the version you'd expect on one side, but a Welsh language version sung by her on the other side. She's 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 a Welsh speaker and a good singer. So it'll be a bilingual mm. cassette single of the of the same song. And the main thing in the way of that at the moment is that I've done the backing vocals to the A side, but I've now got to go and do the backing vocals to the B side in Welsh. Mm. And I have to admit, I'm a bit like a horse bridling at this. I just know I'm Right. It's a really, it's, it's, it's for, for an English speaker, work is really difficult. It's much harder to to do than French or Spanish. It's, yeah, and when I mess up, it's going to uh, probably be offensive, or, or they'll just laugh at me. Hopefully, they'll just laugh at me. Yeah. But <laughs> you have so that double L. That sounds like the angry goose. I'm always told that <laughs> sound. Yeah, it's vertically really different. Um, I mean, it's, it's only a few words Amy's got to sing, but there, it is. Yeah, it's not the easiest thing in the world. But okay. It's going to be fun to try. <laughs> of course. Um, yeah, so there'll be a bilingual single um, on the 1st of September. To bilingual single has a nice ring to it. It does, it does. It? Yeah. 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 Nice. Bilingual single. Um, it will be cassette. Apart from anything else, because if we tried to do it, tried to get a vinyl thing made now, we wouldn't get it ready until... You know, Caravan or through. Yeah, so kind of had a through with their solos um, again, and uh, but uh, that's cool because you can. I mean, obviously, because you can do it on Bandcamp, so people can get it digitally. It doesn't really matter in some ways what the physical thing is because people can access it as a download. My friend's band do. in uh, in Brooklyn, uh, Vis en Vis. They um they just put out a cassette, but they're selling it with a pink Walkman on uh, Bandcamp. So if you don't have the means to listen to it, you can buy the means as well, which I really like. <laughs> it was 30 bucks for the whole thing with the Walkman and five bucks for the tape. Are they new Walkman or old Walkman? I didn't even know they were making them now. I think they're new. I mean, they had them specially done. <laughs> Pink. People have listened. People are doing them. Maybe. Oh, I want a walk. That's, that's quite cool. <laughs> that is quite a cool idea. That is brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> Got ideas now. Thinking. Uh, <laughs> no, we can't. We can't nick their idea, but it's a very good idea. Yeah. So that that's that's what will happen, I guess, after this album's done. Yeah. And Berlin Gap is out on June the eighteenth. June eighteenth. Um, June the 18th. Um, and so, yeah, for, for America, if you're America, it's on shelf life. Um, and over here and everywhere else, it's on Skep Wax. Um, and it's on a really nice white sea foamy vinyl. This was Ed. The sleeve is designed. Well, I took the picture, but Ed from Shelf Life designed the sleeve rather brilliantly, I think. And he, he was very keen that we chose the vinyl color that matched the color of the foam on the, on the waves. At, and so that is nice. what we've got. Sea foam vinyl. <laughs> AKA white. Yes, white. White. Think sea foam. 
Excellent. It was great to talk to you guys again. And uh, I'm sure we'll be speaking to you. And we'll um, we'll do the the cribbage thing. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Listeners, uh, actually, we shouldn't tell them about our all cribbage podcast. (laughs) You know, it's it's not to be forgotten. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Hope you enjoyed that. Always a pleasure to talk to Amelia and Rob. Do check out Burling Gap out on the 18th. And don't forget about the Eddie Van Halen soup of the Young Southpaw Decalogue cover over at Bandcamp. If you want to share this episode or subscribe to or review the podcast, that'd be much appreciated. I'm going to play you out on one of my faves from the new Catenary Wires album, Burling Gap. This is the last song, The Overview Effect. Relate from end to end The words we've said They would reach the sun And stars And back again If we put the chances That we throw away into A room it would be the biggest room Take the things we've made and buttons pressed. When we look back, will we claim we did our best? Like a bed without a nest, without a tree. Like a child. Can't things stay the same? Can't things stay the same?